0: James chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I'm really not sure what to do about this. That is, I'm really not sure where to get my news. I'd like to know some of what's going on at least, but I really don't know what sources I should use. We don't have a TV and we don't get a local paper, so I really don't know what's going on uh, around us here in South Florida. Um, and I also have, have not been going to the, the normal channels that most Americans use, because I got used to uh, an international news source when I was in Mexico, and I've kept up with that. Uh, it's a weekly news magazine, and so I often know more about what's going on in India than in Margate. Uh, or Venezuela than Miami. Um, but there's a problem with uh, the news sources. I find that people who use uh, the US news sources always seem to be angry and agitated uh, about something. And I don't want to be angry and agitated, um, and, uh, but I have a problem with my news source. My news source often leaves me depressed as I read about what's going on in the world. Because there is a constant story that runs through every single issue every week. And this is the story, that around the world, in the United States, in Brazil, in the Philippines, in South Korea, in China, in Russia, wherever it might be, the rich are exploiting the poor. And the powerful are oppressing the powerless and I'll finish this news, and uh, I, I'm depressed, and I wonder, should I keep reading this news magazine? Now, I know they're not making this up. I know it's out there, but maybe I just uh, get overwhelmed when I hear it time and time and time again and feel uh, helpless to do anything about it. Well, to make it more depressing we recognize that that's not a new story. That's a story that has gone on for apparently almost as long as humanity has been around. That seems to be the story of humanity. The rich exploiting the poor and the powerful taking advantage of the powerless. Now, we already know that James was dealing with a situation like that. If we go back and look at chapter 2, verse 6... It says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So we already know that there was a situation in which these Christians who were not uh, not destitute, but they were also not wealthy, somewhere in the middle, that they were showing favoritism to the rich, but the rich were the very ones who were oppressing them. And now James lets loose in this last chapter. He lets loose in a, a a denunciation of these rich oppressors in the first six verses, and then he turns to Christians. Then he turns to oppressed Christians, and he addresses them. So, it breaks down in these two sections. Verses 1 to 6, the warning to the rich oppressors. Now, he is already, in chapter 4, if you'll recall, he's already addressed greedy Christians. Greedy Christians. And now he's going to address greedy non-Christians. And we find the tone changes here. Uh, Because when he was speaking to the Christians, he used very strong language. If you will remember last week about uh, cleansing your hands, you sinners, be wretched and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning and so on. Very strong language. But he held out hope that they might respond. He expected a positive response. He expected repentance on their behalf. He expected that they would turn from their, their sin and turn back to the Lord. But we find a very different tone in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. There's no hope held out here. It is complete denunciation, it is complete pronouncement of doom on these rich oppressors. And so we conclude that he's not speaking to Christians. Uh, to whom he can appeal to repent in the name of the Lord, he's speaking to those who have rejected God, rejected Christ, and they have given themselves completely over to their riches that are gained by ill-gotten means. So, uh, he used a word here to start out. And he used a word that comes from the Old Testament prophets. And the word is, howl. Howl. In verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, he had already told the Christians to weep, but now he says to the non-Christian oppressors, Weep and howl. Very strong language. And he says the reason was because of the miseries that were coming upon them. And then he describes those miseries. Some of those miseries were already present in their lives. If you look at verse 2, it says, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. So this is something they were already experiencing. Anybody experienced that? Anybody experienced uh, anything, uh, clothing getting eaten by moths? And it's always the best, the best wool, right? Uh, and uh, anybody experienced riches just growing wings and flying away? Possessions that you thought were secure and they just... They just dissipate. They, that, they do that. And, and, and that was happening then. It continues to happen now. And then in verse 3, he says, "...your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you." Now, some people take James to task and say, James, gold and silver don't corrode. But I think he's actually saying, oh, yes, they do. And he's not talking about chemical properties here. He's talking about how they they vanish away, they dissipate, they become worthless. And he says they're becoming more worthless now, but they will play a role on the last day. They will be all too present on the last day because they will cry out on the last day. It says their corrosion will be evidence verse 3, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And he says, You have laid up treasure in the last days. In the last days. Now, that expression, the last days, we find that in the New Testament. And we find it to refer to the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Uh, the, The New Testament writers announce that we are, since Jesus came, in the last days. And sometimes people will say, well, do you think we're in the last days? And I'm always able to say, absolutely. We are in the last days because it's just a matter of time. Because Christ has come and He has inaugurated the last days. Now, what they were doing is they were accumulating shiny things in the last days. They were amassing things that, that dissipate in the last days. We have just entered into... Hurricane season here in South Florida. I'm not sure exactly what the date is, but I think it just started recently. And a couple years ago, we dodged a, excuse me, we dodged a bullet, didn't we? We had a category five heading right for us, and that cone had us right in the middle. And so we were, for a time, expecting the worst. Now we don't know what this hurricane season will bring, but let's just assume that one of these years we don't dodge the bullet that we are in the eye of the hurricane, and let's assume that it's a Category 5. What are we doing? Well, most people are closing their shutters, they're buying plywood, they're buying supplies, they're getting out of town, they're doing what they can to protect themselves. Let's say you have a neighbor, and your neighbor, as this Cat 5 is just off the coast and about to strike, goes out and buys a new car and parks it in front of his house. And then the next day he shows up with a sailboat, that he parks in the canal in back of his house. And then he has his workers feverishly working on building him a new Tiki Hut bar in his backyard uh, uh, as this, this hurricane is bearing down. What would you say? You would say, that's silly. That's silly because it's going to get destroyed. It's going to get washed away very, very soon. What are you doing? And that's what James is saying to these people. He's saying, what are you doing? You're in the last days, and you're accumulating stuff? You're putting every, all of your efforts into stuff? And he goes on and says, Behold, not only, not only will the corrosion of your shiny objects be evidence against you on that last day, but verse 4, we find out how they obtained those shiny objects. It was by fraud and by oppression. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And so they were not only wealthy, they were wealthy by fraud. Here James shows once again, his dependence on the Old Testament, and his thorough knowledge of it, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, it says, "...you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. It's talking about a day laborer. And that day laborer works the day. And that day laborer needs the wages of the day to buy the provisions of the day. And here in Deuteronomy it's saying, if you withhold those wages, he will cry out against you. And James says the same thing. That those withheld wages of those workers will cry out against you. Now, um, the, um, the wealth here that it's describing is ill-gotten wealth, but neither James nor anywhere in the Bible is wealth described as bad in and of itself. It's never described as bad in and of itself, and sometimes it's described as a means for doing good. But here, James, like the prophets, like the Proverbs, like the Psalms, like Paul, like Jesus, is warning against some of the, the dangers of the accumulation of wealth. And what are some of those dangers? Well, um, unjust and merciless accumulation of wealth and the human suffering that it causes Cries out to the Lord of Armies. That's the first problem. So if we if we cut corners, if we use fraud, if we if we do things that are wrong in order to gain wealth, that it will be a testimony against us rather than an advantage to us. That's the first thing. The second thing is this: luxurious living is dangerous. It says in verse five, "You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self indulgence," and um, this is what. This is what luxury does. It tends to feed our self-indulgence. And so, when we have a luxury, what do we want? More luxury. And it keeps feeding itself. A very simple example, we may not think of this as a luxury, but it really is. I don't know how many of you have Amazon Prime. Well, Amazon Prime, the great thing about Amazon Prime is that you can get things delivered in two days. And yes, now somebody's holding up an index finger. Now Amazon Prime, they have their own gray vans. And, uh, they have broken their, their, uh, their contract with, uh, finished their contract with FedEx and they're going straight to the delivery themselves. And now they're promising for many people, uh, for many products that they can deliver it the next day. Isn't that exciting? But now, when I order something on Amazon Prime, and I have to wait two days? Yes, exactly. I, I'm, I'm indignant. How is this possible that they're going to take so long to deliver my things? I want them tomorrow. And then when I order something from another company, where they say three to six days to deliver, I'm, I'm aghast. How can I survive having to wait that Long, But you see what happened? Three to six days used to be a great delivery period. Two days was amazing. And now we insist on now. A little luxury. A little luxury that many people can afford. But what does it do? It trains us to indulge ourselves. It trains us to demand what we want when we want it. And that's a little example. Bigger luxuries can produce bigger amounts of self-indulgence. And the third thing, uh, the third thing is the, the abuse of power deprives the poor of justice, and it often deprives the poor of their very lives. Because oftentimes the lives of the poor are hanging by a thread. It says, "...you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter." They thought they were just slaughtering their animals for their feasts, but James turns it around and says, no, you're fattening yourselves for a day of slaughter. And then in verse 6, it says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Now, we don't know how they were doing it. Most people think that they were doing it judicially, taking advantage of the court system in order to oppress the poor, not realizing that oppressing the poor would lead to, in many cases, their starvation and their death withholding their wages could lead to death. And so they were, they were guilty of, of taking away the livelihood and even the life of the poor. Um, now, this section... Oh, by the way, there's one more thing. The last line, it says, He does not resist you. He does not resist you. Uh, who's the he here? It's the righteous person. It says, you are oppressing, you're condemning, you're murdering, the righteous person and he does not resist you now there's some interpreters and i don't think they're correct here i don't think this is what james is getting at some interpreters say that that's jesus because jesus is the righteous person who did not resist the powerful who were condemning him and murdering him although i don't think that's the primary reference i think it does point us to jesus because he is the example, par excellence, of the, the righteous sufferer who did not resist his oppressors. And I don't think James is pointing directly to him, but the whole New Testament points to him. And if we go to Peter, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we find that this is how, how he describes Jesus. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says, For to you this... Uh, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. He was the righteous one. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. So here we see that this pattern of the righteous sufferer is fulfilled in Jesus. And why was he able to suffer righteously, unjustly, up to the point of being murdered? Because he had a greater goal. And that was to bear our sins in his body on the tree. And then Peter says, he did that for you to bring you to God, to take away your sins if you trust in him. And he also did that as an example for you. And so as we move into this next section of James, as he's going to tell us how to respond if we're on the, the short end of the stick of oppression, uh, we need to remember Jesus, the righteous sufferer, the righteous one who was oppressed and did not resist, but entrusted himself to God. Now, we might ask, why does James write to those who would never read what he wrote? Because he's writing to people that would never read this. He's, he's writing... Uh, to the church, and the church would read this, but these, these, uh, these unbelieving, uh, godless oppressors would never read this. Uh, and so, even though he's addressing them, as the prophets sometimes do as well, he is actually giving an indirect message to the Christians. And what is the indirect message to the Christians? The indirect message is this, twofold at least. Folks, don't envy those people. Don't envy those people. It's easy to do that, isn't it? When we have our difficulties, and we we look at them, and everything seems to go well for them, everything seems to be easy for them, everything seems to be opulent and luxurious and comfortable for them, James is reminding us that, no, if we have a long view, things are not good for them. That's the first thing. So don't envy them. Rather... Pity them. And the second thing is this. God will put all things right. Things are not right down here right now. And things have not been right since the first sin. But God, one day, will put all things right. And that leads us to His words to His brothers and sisters. If you look at verse 7, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Be patient, therefore, brothers. And he uses this word brothers, he uses it four times here. And Greek has the same problem that English does. Um, There's not a a real easy way to say, unless we spell it out, brothers and sisters, but but it's inclusive here, even though it's masculine language. And siblings in English just doesn't get it. If we say, uh, be patient, therefore, siblings, it doesn't sound so intimate. He's speaking to brothers and he's speaking to sisters. So now he turns from the rich oppressors and he comes back home and says, be patient. And that's what he says. That's the main message for the brothers and the sisters to be patient. And he uses the word for patience four times. And then he also says to be steadfast. And he uses that word two times. So that's the message for Christians, oppressed Christians, Christians who feel like they're on the the, the short end uh, of the the stick, the the ones who are, are receiving injustice and being oppressed and being taken advantage of. He says, brothers and sisters, be patient and endure. Be patient and be steadfast. And he gives three examples, three examples of patient steadfastness. The first one is the farmer. He says, oh, until when? Look at this. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Uh, In the eastern Mediterranean, there were early rains that were in the late fall or into the winter, early winter, uh, November, December, those were the early rains, and then there were the late rains that came in the spring, and so they adjusted their planting and harvesting and so on to, to, to take advantage of the early rains and the late rains. But what could they do to bring about the early rains and the late rains? Anything? What did they have to do? wait, and be patient, and endure, and be steadfast. That's all they could do. They could do their part. They could plant, they could plow, they could reap, they could weed, they could do whatever they needed to do, fertilize, but they could not bring about what they ultimately needed to happen. And so they had to be steadfast, and they had to be patient, which is the same today, even with irrigation. Farming is still dependent on the rains. And he says to Christians, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And here we see this mentality. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Why? Because we're in the last days. He's already come. It's just a matter of time. He is at the door. He is about to arrive. And so that patience will not have to last long that steadfastness will not have to be uh, long endured because he is coming and he's coming very soon. Now, by the way, it's interesting that James here sometimes we 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 have trouble with James because he doesn't talk about Jesus by name except a couple of times, once in the introduction and once in the body of the of the uh, the letter. But here, if you'll go through these verses, he uses the word Lord sometimes to refer to God and sometimes to refer to Jesus. And so here we see the very exalted perspective and and belief that James has about Jesus, that He is the Lord, that He is God. So when he talks about the coming of the Lord, he's talking about the coming of Jesus. It is at hand. So wait patiently. Instead, vastly. Now, there are a couple interludes in this. There, there are two more examples, and we'll get to those two more examples, but James intersperses uh, two exhortations about, here's a surprise, about speech. So James interjects two instructions about speech in the middle of this. When you're waiting, Let's say at the DMV or or um uh, in some other place you're 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 waiting and and things don't seem to be moving along you're in a line at the airport or, or or at the supermarket or wherever it might be and things just don't seem to be advancing. It's easy to do what? Grumble. Grumble and complain. And here perhaps because it's so hard to wait James says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, here's the image again, is standing at the door. So as you are waiting, as you are persevering, as you are enduring, as you are being steadfast, and as the time seems to be taking too long, as the wait seems to be too long, don't grumble. Don't grumble, because just on the other side of the door is the judge. And he's about to burst through. Now, the second example is in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Uh, If you look back, he's referring to the Old Testament prophets. And if you look back at the job of the Old Testament prophet, it's not a job description that hardly anybody, maybe nobody, would would choose for themselves. Because their job was to preach to people, most of whom would not listen. And who would shoot the messenger. Who would get angry at the prophets for bringing them God's message. And many of the prophets were persecuted. Many of the prophets were killed. That was their job description. Preach to people who won't listen and who will turn on you and blame you. So, that's the job description of the prophets. And what did they do? They kept going. They kept preaching. They kept remaining steadfast. And he says, there's an example. And we count them today, we count them as blessed. That's the second example. And the third example is Job. Now, Job is perhaps the oldest book of the Old Testament, and here we are in what is perhaps the oldest book of the New Testament, in James. Job is a story about a man, and that man suffered. Uh, perhaps more than any mere mortal in the whole Bible. And it's never explained why he had to suffer. He never gets an explanation. And then some friends come and try to comfort him, but they actually start blaming him. And, and it's chapter after chapter after chapter of James saying what's going on here? I don't deserve this. Uh, I want to have an audience with God so that he can explain this to me. And then finally at the end, he has an audience with God. And he says, I repent in dust and ashes. He closes his mouth when he realizes that God is God and he is a creature. And he, uh, he worships God. Now, we might wonder at the description of Job as patient because sometimes he seems very impatient to have this audience with God. But one thing that we can see in Job very clearly is the endurance and the steadfastness of his faith. Because at the very beginning, after he's lost everything, he has a wife who gives him very bad advice. The wife says, just get it over with. Curse God and die. And he refuses to do that. And he says something that inspired one of the songs that we we read today. He said, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he never lost that posture. Even though he was anxious for this this audience with God, he never uh, cursed God. He never gave up blessing God, knowing that God is the One who is sovereign, and that God will do what is right in His time. And so Job is this third example. And it says, You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When did Job learn that the Lord is compassionate and merciful? He learned at the end of the story. After he had gone through this suffering, after he had been patient, for we don't know how long, after he had endured and been steadfast, then the Lord's purpose was obvious, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, after that third example... Looking somewhat out of the blue, but perhaps not. James does jump around some. But James goes back to talk about, surprise once again, what? Speech. Speech. And that's how he ends this section. He says in verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is a, a fascinating section here, because this is the closest that James gets to quoting Jesus directly. Now, what's fascinating about that is that James wrote probably before the Gospels were written, and he knew the words of Jesus even before they had been written down. So, uh, we can see that in, in verse uh, chapter 5 of Matthew. Hear the similarity here. Chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, And by the way, it seems that perhaps James was there, and he may well have been there to hear Jesus say this. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or from the evil one. Sounds almost exactly what James is saying to us here. Now, what's the connection? Uh, some suggest that the connection is this, that people that are being economically oppressed and are in poverty, they have a tendency to need to borrow money. And when they borrow money, what do they do? They promise to pay it back. And, and I've, I've seen this, and I've had people come to me that have they've gotten in, in difficult situations, and, and they, they ask for a loan from me or from the church or from somebody, and, and then they, they promise up and down that they will pay it back. And they may well have that intention to pay it back, but they often don't have the means to be able to pay it back. They're in poverty. And so it could be that that's the connection. And James is saying, be careful. Be careful when you get in tough straits. Don't start taking oaths about what you're going to do when you can't fulfill it. Don't invoke God's name in something that you're not able to fulfill. He says, rather, simply let your yes be yes, let your no be no. That is, let your word be your bond bond. Be the kind of person that doesn't have to say, I promise, or I swear, or I, I, uh, I vow, because your word is as good as gold. Your word is your bond. I remember um, in Mexico, there was a situation in which the coach, uh, I knew about the situation, there was a, a group of young, young people, I mean children, I think they were maybe 8 or 10 or something like that, and uh, there was one Christian girl in this group. And the coach did what coaches sometimes do and said, okay, I want you to run five laps around whatever it was, and I'll be right back. And uh, so uh, the coach went away and came back and said, did you, did you run the laps? And all the kids said, oh, yes, yes, we ran the laps, coach. And the coach was a little skeptical because he knew his group. And he said, are you sure? And he really wanted to know. And what the children did was interesting. The children pointed to the Christian child, the little Christian girl, and said, Ask her. And so the coach asked her, and she said, Yes, coach. All of us ran the laps. And that was the end of the matter. Why? Because that little Christian girl had established a reputation for having a word that is as good as gold. I learned a lesson that day. She taught me about James. She taught me about Jesus' words. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. If one of us says something, that is certainly how it is. That's the reputation that we need to have. Now, we are about to finish our time in the letter of James, Lord willing. We will finish it next week. And we have gone, if you have noticed, over three great themes repeatedly. And these three great themes keep coming up repeatedly. And they are these. Trials, wisdom, and speech. Trials, wisdom, and speech. And the overall goal, if you recall some sections that we saw, the overall goal is that Christians would live like Christians. That those who say they have faith in Jesus would live as people who have faith in Jesus, particularly in these three areas, in the midst of trials, in the practice of wisdom, and in what comes out of our mouths. Now, living out faith is easier when times are easy, isn't it? Living out faith is harder when times are harder. And James' readers, they were having a hard time of it. And so James is calling on them, thus the repetition of trials and trials and trials. James is calling on them to live out their faith in the midst of trials. Now, all of us here have had, are having, or will have serious trials in our lives. And I had a professor who used to say something that I thought was brilliant and very insightful. He said this, "...the character of the Christian is seen not so much in our actions, but in our reactions. And what he meant by that was this, "...if we're in control of the situation, and everything's going swimmingly well, we pretty much know how to act." And we can act okay, or even well. But when things get out of our control, and when things start turning against us, we are no longer the actors. The circumstances and other people are the primary protagonists. They are the actors. And it's our role now to respond, to react. And James was calling on these people who were not in control of much about their lives and calling on us today, whatever our situation is today or will be tomorrow. He's calling us on us, yes, to act as Christians, but also when the vice gets tightened, when, when times get difficult, when trials come and we're tempted to respond in a way that's not in accordance with wisdom. And when we're tempted for things to come out of our mouths that would be dishonoring to God, He's calling on us not only to act as Christians, but to react as Christians. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for these examples. The farmer, the prophet and the righteous sufferer in Job. We thank You most of all for Jesus, the righteous sufferer who did not retaliate, who did not resist those who oppressed and even murdered Him, because He had a bigger goal in mind, the salvation of our lives by giving His life for us. Lord, we recognize that compared to many Christians in history and many Christians around the world today, Our lives are relatively easy. But we, in our lives, have pressures as well. We have losses, we have struggles, we have difficulties, and we suffer sometimes injustices. And we pray, O God, that whatever we're experiencing today or whatever might come tomorrow, we pray, O God, that not only our actions, but our reactions would be in accordance with the faith, the glorious faith we profess in the glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.